The Athletic. Everybody senses that he's off, but there's so much uncertainty. There's no prospect really of a brighter future beyond this season because we don't know what next season's going to look like. I'm sure we said this before, it puts so much emotional pressure on are they going to win a trophy this season? Are they going to get fourth this season? Hello and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today is The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. Now, on this episode, we'll be discussing a comfortable win, if such a thing exists, for Spurs. And another week going by where Antonio Conte, A, remains in a job, but his future remains front and centre and speculation about it. We'll actually have a little bit of a chat about the runners and riders for when, as I now believe is inevitable rather than if, he departs. Let's start with saying hello to Jack and to James. How are you both? Okay? Good, thank you. Yeah, good, thank you. Let's first start with get the thoughts of our very own Tim Spears. Coming to the end of his time as the Tottenham correspondent for The Athletic, because um, Charlie Eccleshare will be returning soon, but I'm more than ever interested in what Tim made of it, because he's been on a roller coaster ride with this blinking team. Here's what he had to say on the result at the end of the game and the atmosphere inside the stadium itself. Hi guys, how are you doing? A comfortable win for Spurs. Three easy points, three goals, two goals in the first half, Son scored, Richarlison played well. was not expecting this, not going to lie. Um, yeah, I've got to say from the off, Forest were absolutely abysmal. Just handed it on a plate with some of their defending. Their away forms are atrocious, they've only scored three away from home all season. Uh, and even for the first sort of two, three minutes when Richarlison scored a very, very, very tightly offside uh, goal. You could just see that there were going to be gaps for Spurs to exploit, which they did really well, to be fair. Um, the disappointment was they could have had a couple more goals because Forrest went on the attack with a 4-2-4 in the second half and left some gaps to exploit, but the game was won by that point. Spurs didn't seem too fussed about turning it into a round. But yeah, um, a few really important things today. Obviously, uh, Kane scoring his penalty, the first since the World Cup, which was nice. And Richarlison just really took the game by the scruff of the neck. Really impressed with his performance. Set up one goal, won the penalty for the other, and just kind of looked like that all-action scruff of the neck type player that, that we've been waiting to see for a few weeks now. You know, we had glimpses in the first half of the season, but since the World Cup, um, it's not really showed any of this kind of form. So, yeah, a surprise starter after his comments in midweek, but he's fully justified it. Looking forward to hearing what Antonio Conte has to say. Um, and speaking of him, I mean, you know, it's so important for... The atmosphere. Not that it was a loud atmosphere, but you know, for the atmosphere in terms of it could easily have gone mutinous today if Forrest had scored the first goal. Um, Steve Cooper really should be really disappointed with, with his and the team's approach actually because if they'd have put pressure on Spurs early on, it could have been a very different game, but they didn't. And a really important win for Spurs. So it's all right again. Right then, thank you very much for those musings, Tim. And I suppose I should punch the air because whatever else, at last, James. A, a straightforward, comfortable win for Spurs. Yeah, it was incredibly straightforward, despite the early uh, bump in the road in the form of that insane disallowed goal. I, I don't think you and I can even get into that. We're not, are we good? Are we going to have time to get into that? Well, well, why don't you give us your view? And I'll, I'll I, keep strong. I, I think it's genuinely, we're obviously at risk of repeating ourselves. If you're, in the, you're in the stadium, you don't really know what's going on. The goal is celebrated, about a minute passes, and then the purple thing comes up on the screen saying, VAR check, possible offside. And you're like, well, okay. Mm-hmm. 
Honestly, how long did it go on? I mean, I, I think it was three or four minutes. So it felt like that long. Maybe it was only two or three. Went on for ages. And again, this is a very kind of obvious point. If it takes that long, you shouldn't be looking at it as a possible offside. And it is like a, the, the width of a Nats whatever between Richarlison and whoever the last man is. I just don't see any way in which they can definitively say that's offside. And with that in mind, there's no way they should be disallowing that goal. There's no complaint. If that goal stands, there's no Nottingham Forest complaint. There's no Nottingham Forest appeal for offside in the process of the whole thing from any of the players or from the fans. Everyone's just working on the assumption it's a goal and it's completely fine. And next time Spurs concede a goal like that and it gets a return of VAR, it happened in that Leicester game and I said it should have counted and it's easy to say that when you've got smashed anyway. But regardless, next time it happens in a tight game, come back to me and ask me whether I think that should stand because it should. Yeah, and if I might add it on your behalf, football, if it's about anything... One of the things it cannot not be about is the spectators in the stadium. Without them, as we saw during the pandemic, you've got a pale imitation of the game. And therefore, they should be treated better than you sitting there. Of course, we had more watching TV. We had more idea what was going on. If you can't, if the paying customers aren't at the front, the forefront of these decisions, then I, I mean, it, that makes it stink even more. And you'll never convince me in a, in a, in a million years that he was actually offside because I don't believe it for one minute. I thought we'd got round to a stage where we, we were giving strikers the advantage again. We were giving the benefit of the doubt to the attacking players so we saw more goals. But that was a goal that was disallowed on, on, on the basis of like pointless geometry. It's just The I, words I are never spoken. The words will never be spoken. They are not written. They will never be written. They give the benefit of the doubt, the advantage to the referee on the pitch. But he, but he hasn't, but there hasn't been a flag there. He didn't think that was offside. Absolutely. But that's what the, the overall VAR is about giving advantage to the referee. It's a, it's a mess. Given the past week, Jack, how huge a, a result was this for Spurs? I think it probably helps to keep Antonio Conte there. So it's a big result for him. Uh, it's a big. It was a good weekend for Tottenham's hopes of finishing fourth because Liverpool lost mm. to Bournemouth. So Tottenham made a three-point advantage over Liverpool. Fourth, sir. What about third? Yeah, well, yeah. That I mean, I suppose that that's on the table as well. I'm, I wasn't actually at yeah, the game. One win, one win, and I'm back at it now. Yeah. Third, come on. Um, so I don't know what the atmosphere was like, but I imagine it was probably James quite weird because everybody. I mean, I certainly left left the stadium late on Wednesday night, not expecting Conte to be the manager on Saturday. And of course he was. So I wonder how, how that dynamic played. And I'm sure lots of Spurs fans felt similarly. So I wonder how that how that dynamic kind of felt on Saturday. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly weird. The atmosphere was quite sort of uh, subdued for the first hour. But then actually where I stand... It was quite boisterous in the second half when they were kind of freeing up and cruising. Like in the last half hour, there seemed to be a lot of people there like willing to make a lot of noise. Not like kind of pro or anti-Conte, just generally just like, you know, general chanting and getting behind the team and whatever. So actually the atmosphere at the end was quite good at the start. It was pretty flat. I, I mean, And I mean, it's not much anything else. I think that's probably down to the fact it was like a no contest as a game. Yeah. I mean, I, I know this isn't a Nottingham Forest podcast, but I couldn't believe how bad Nottingham Forest were. Like having watched them play a few times this season, seen to be a bit of a shambles at the start kind of find their shape, find a bit of rhythm in the middle part of the season, claw their way way away from the relegation zone and it looked like they were going to be in the next Derby County 2007-2008. But having watched them, play, watched them play against Everton last weekend or the weekend before and obviously at Spurs this weekend, I mean, I just can't... <laughs> just, it's a complete shambles all of a sudden. I'm not... I mean, like, I'm sure there are far more qualified people to say what has changed and why. But I was... I mean, I was trying to work out 
the last time I saw Spurs play a Premier League game against a team who I thought were worse than that on the day. And I honestly went back to that Derby team in 2007, but actually... Of course, I, I, in that's the answer to all those questions, uh, isn't it? Must it have been, must have been Wigan in the 9-1, who like conceded the same goal six times and didn't change anything to stop to stop Spurs scoring the same goal like five or six times with Lennon and Defoe both in that kind of space. Do you remember when they hammered Frank Lampard's Everton last season? Oh, yeah. Like, that were, was yeah. really like, oh my God, I can't they believe what dreadful. I watched. They were dreadful. Yeah, that is well, true. I, I, I would make the differential between those two performances that that Everton team, Everton can't defend. Nottingham Forest don't defend. This is like almost a decision not to close down. At least players were as technically as good as you and I suspect in Spurs' case, slightly better than you, to not close the spaces down. You know, so that Oliver Skip, you know, suddenly he adds to his ball winning and grunting and around around the pitch, you know, very effectively for Spurs. He's added space to pass the ball as much as he wanted. It was, it was a very, very odd performance uh, from Nottingham Forest. And put into perspective, I thought, the t- chat about Steve Cooper being possible replacement for Conte uh, medium term, you know... It, it just doesn't make any sense to me that one at the moment. We'll get on to who might replace Conte um, in the second half of this this podcast. The atmosphere, whatever it was, I want. I mean, I want to give praise to two people here. Now, everybody, get ready. It's um, it's the morning of whatever day it is in March so 2023. I have to praise Antonio Conte here because for whatever sets of reasons, both he and Richarlison did very well. He did well to pick him. Rashad didn't play real. Why? Why do you think he was picked, Jack? Or is we, uh, is the answer? We don't see them in training, and Dejan Kulusevski is as poor in training as he currently is on the pitch. Putting the interview controversy out to one side for a second, it does kind of make sense football wise. I, I still think, I still think Rashalis and Kane Kulusevski might be the best front three at the moment. But with Kulusevski playing so badly. I think it, it, it makes sense to make that change. Is Kulusevski playing as badly as some? Though, or has he been playing as badly as some? Over the course of the season, no, but within the over the last month or two, yes, I think. I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. The last game, which when Spurs were so terrible, I, I don't know. I thought I, I just thought Kulusevski was just running into walls. But then you know you could argue that's what Son, Son's been doing all season. Um, but it worked, didn't it? I mean, Conte uh, presumably it's a kind of you know I won't swear. F you. Um, get out there and show us what you can do then. And Richarlison, uh, even allowing for the disallowed goal, which, of course, he massively over-celebrated because you can't celebrate like that anymore, um, I was made to look an utter fool. I was pleased for him then afterwards. You could argue that he was integral to all three of Tottenham's goals. I mean, that that is... It's funny. I mean, I, I, I don't think we've really ever got to the bottom of whether or not Richarlison meant his season or Tottenham's season had been shit. I think I, I think know, it, was a, know, it, was a, it was a catch-all shitness, wasn't it? Well, maybe, yeah. Uh, I know Antonio Conte had his opinion. I don't think Richarlison has actually been that bad this season. I mean, I, I'm sure like you're a forward who has signed for a club for big money. You want to score goals in the Premier League. Uh, obviously, that has been a disappointment. But I think I don't think his performance or his approach to the game on. Saturday was especially different to how he's played over the course of the season. He's kind of played with that sort of tenacity and and busyness throughout. To me, I don't know how many assists he's got. I've not got the numbers in front of me, but it's felt like he's got a couple. So yeah, I, I you know it was notable in terms of what had happened in the week. But to me, that didn't feel like a sort of head and shoulders standout performance from him over the course of the season. That's just kind of how he's played the whole way through. I think he's done fine, and it is frustrating he hasn't scored. But Kulusevski hasn't scored. Has he scored one goal all season? The first game of the season, Son, as we know, has scored. I think it's six or seven now. 
obviously Kane, as we always say, mm. is impervious to whatever, so we just carry on scoring anyway. But the, clearly there is an issue with attacking players in this team scoring goals. It's not just about Richarlison. It is partly on those players, of course. But I, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say he's had a shit season. To me. Well, we're quoting his words there, aren't we? I mean, again, I think it was partly, it wasn't that I played shit, it has been a shit season because he hasn't had enough minutes and all the so, rest of it. But, you know, there are other managers who would have then blanked him for the rest of the season. Um, after that uh, outburst and, uh, and, you know, Conte's press conference when he made the, he did make the differentiation between I and we and all the rest of it was, you know, giving himself some some wiggle room. And I thought they did very well to to sort it out between them. And if we can get the best out of Richarlison, even if Kulusevsky is playing really well again by the end of the season, that's a huge bonus for Spurs. Other players who I thought, uh, I mean, we, have we finished apologising to Fraser Forster overall now? Have we? We're we're now all behind him. It's kind of a bit of a shame that he did his Superman impression in between the first really good save he's made. I think, to my memory, maybe I'm, maybe I'm maybe I missed one. But that, that, that glancing header that he turned over the bar was a really really good save. And then obviously the save penalty as well, which wasn't a great penalty, but still, you know, if your goalkeeper saving a penalty, that's pretty good going. It's a shame there was the Superman impression that led to the goal in between those two things. Because I was stood there thinking, oh, actually, he's done, he's done pretty well. And I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, if you, had t- if you had come to me before the Leicester game and said, how many goals do you think this team are going to concede over these next eight games or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I think I probably would have said, I mean, I think it's probably like eight, is it eight and eight or something like that? Half of them against Leicester? Probably. Yeah, that um, feels right. I, I don't think I would have said a lower number had Lloris been in the team. Which isn't to say it wouldn't have been a lower number had Lloris been in the team. It's about my pessimism, I'm sure. But that one game aside, and we, you know, we tore him to pieces after that game, didn't we? Really, we did. Yeah, uh, he hasn't looked anywhere near as exposed in any other game, which is, I suppose, partly a team effort. But also, sure. he's made the saves he's needed to make. He's got down to play his feet when he's needed to do that, and he's come for crosses probably much more than Lloris has or does now. So yeah, he's looked, he's looked pretty steady, and I think that obviously makes a difference to the rest of the team, knowing that the goalkeeper you've got there is one you can rely on. No, they were all very excited for him after the penalty, weren't they? Even though the game, even you know, you have the nightmares of fans were going to throw away a three 0 lead here, but the players knew the game was up. But they were very excited for him when he saved the penalty, and that was good, that was good to see. I thought Skip was excellent, but the player I really want to talk about next, Jack, is is Pedro Porro, who after that rotten debut at uh, Leicester, uh, two things uh, you know you can help me with. I mean, he played very well against a Nottingham Forest side that were determined not to stop him, and. I guess Romero had been told, you know, just calm it down. So Pedro took up the um, shithousing space for him by shouting at the opposition at every chance he got. Yeah, he's clearly very um, kind of feisty. Like he's very, mm. he's been very expressive. He he really kind of he play, he plays with a lot of personality. He's very uh, he's very aggressive, and I think he's already becoming. You know, he looks like he's going to be good fun to watch, Poro. And I thought he and his cross for the Kane header was 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 really really good. You know, Spurs have been trying to play wing back football under Conte for about eighteen months now, without a um, or just under eighteen months, without a good attacking wing back on the right hand side. They haven't really they haven't really had someone who can who's fit enough to do the job and who can cross really well. Like Doherty was quite good in the second half of last season, then tailed off, and then Emerson has improved over this season without ever really being able to create a lot of chances so it, I mean in a sense it kind of lets you into a like hypothetical alternative which is imagine if imagine if Conte had had Pedro Porro from day one you know maybe we maybe everyone would be in a different position by now and I enjoyed the fact that he was being feisty um, because it meant that the right hand side of Spurs' team Romero 
Porro, Richarlison, we're really getting, I mean, that is quite the argumentative trio down that side. And if, as I see sometimes rumoured that Emmy Martinez might be going to, to Spurs, I wouldn't want that myself. I, think, I don't think he's quite that big an upgrade on what we've already got. Um, that would be an amazing, I'm going to use the word again, amazing shithouse 11 down one side of the team. And probably not the worst for that. Porro doing what he did. Romero, James, I, I suppose you could take two of our, our criticisms Romero was less mad and Son was less bad than they've been. Yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, I'd still say Son probably wasn't quite at the level that he was, you know, even last season or, or certainly in the he, couple of he years created that. He created more chances than any Premier League player in any game this season in that one match. Really? Is that right? Okay. Uh, the, st- the stat is he... I mean, no, I, I know he did... We're used to seeing him doing lung-busting runs and beating the first man or rest of it. Apparently, um, that was the most creative performance by any player in the Premier League this season. Okay. I, uh, that, I had to admit that hadn't really caught my eye. But, that, may, um, that may be to do with Nottingham Forest. Who knows? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to kind of be entirely unfair on, on Nottingham Forest, and particularly on our old friend Serge Aurier, who he did uh, have a bit of a torrid time against Son, really. No, but but yeah, you're I, right. I, you're, I, no, you're right, though. You, you, it was, you still couldn't say that was the Son of old, could you? Whatever the stats say. No, I don't think so. And I, and I couldn't help. And, and this isn't a helpful comparison at all. And I know people will be annoyed by it, but, but whatever. I, I think, and I mean, you, you both might have an opinion on this. If the kind of peak Pochettino Spurs of, you know, 2016 or 2017, 18, 19, maybe not 19, 2016, 17, 18 had played that Nottingham Forest team, I think they would have won like 5-0 or something, 6-0. I think they would have completely destroyed them. And that's two different approaches to football and I'm sure there are games where this team would win that Pochettino's team wouldn't win. But uh, yeah, I, it was really striking watching that, that, that you know, they went 2-0 up and looked incredibly comfortable, went 3-0 up after an hour and then kind of sort of faded a little bit when, as a fan in the ground, you probably want them to kind of really go for the jugular and that probably was there. I mean, I don't imagine goal difference is going to be a factor in whatever happens to Spurs at the end of the season. I mean, it could be quite tight, but I don't know. I, 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 just, just purely in terms of like the feel-good factor, I think it would have been good. I know, I really I know exactly what you're talking about because in an entirely different environment, sat in my own living room watching it, when they started doing the passing across the back three thing when they were three up, instead of, as you say, Pochettino would have been in- incredibly encouraging the players to get the ball forward. You saw somewhat the difference between between the two managers' attitude, and uh, oh, you know, let's hope it doesn't come down to goal difference. But it, that, that's not the issue. Uh, Conte wants to manage the game, and I suppose I get that. Jack, we're being incredibly upbeat today because well, that's what results do. Uh, someone help me with this: Is that has Spurs now, despite our doom and gloom on this podcast, have, have they won five of their last seven Premier League games? I believe I saw I saw a table. This was on Saturday night, so probably out of date after the games yesterday. Spurs were top of the Premier League if the Premier League had started the day that Sean Dyche took over at Everton, which was quite well, actually quite striking. That despite uh, all the misery of the last few weeks, actually the league form broadly has been okay. Another, another interesting thing I noticed, and I mean this could just be reading way too much into it. The two league games they lost were the two league games immediately before the Champions League games. Yeah, that's right. Not, not that they like applied themselves brilliantly in those two games, but it did, it did make me wonder whether there was like. Aren't you yeah, supposed to lose ones the ones are... after the Champions League game? Isn't that what you're I supposed know, well, to do? Well, maybe they were so distracted by the prospect of playing Milan that they played dreadfully and then they just played badly against Milan anyway. But yeah, it is true to say Spurs have won five of the last seven in the league, which is a pretty good record, really, given how 
And it, and it also, it's also interesting because it, it shows how the mood does not often go in the same direction as the results. Like, the results have generally been fine over the last... Take a step back and they've been kind of okay over the last sort of two months. But obviously, because of the... I think it's really the, the, those cup exits that, yeah. that has sort of terminated the mood. Honestly, I, it's just Sheffield United for me. Like, I, obviously, it's bad the way they went out of the Champions League. And like we said last week, Milan are no great shape. So I don't think they're a, a brilliant side at all. But if they were still in the FA Cup with that league position now, you'd be pretty optimistic about the rest of the season. You'd think, OK, quarter, home quarter final against Blackburn, win that, get to the semi-final, in a good position in the league, next four games in the league. I'm, I'm not saying they'll automatically win these, obviously. but No, you're, and you're right. Southampton away, Everton away, both obviously in a relegation scrap. Brighton... In good nick, on the cu- in a cup run, on, could be out by them, but maybe they'll have one eye on that. Bournemouth at home, where we've seen what they can do to the top sides in the last two games. So there are games you think Spurs should win in there. I mean, if if they get ten points from those four games, and you know, uh, there's no reason why you'd assume they would on the basis of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. But if they did, they'll be in a really, really good position going into that run of Newcastle, Man United, Liverpool in the at the end of April. I mean, they might even be in a position where they can afford to do quite badly in those games still be fourth afterwards. I mean, who knows? If, if, they can be in a, if, they're in, if they're still fourth in the league after Liverpool, like mad games in hand notwithstanding, I would be pretty confident after that. I was just going to say to you, Jack, that the, the Newcastle, of course, won. But the results for Liverpool, amazing. And Manchester United circumstances, it has totally reignited the idea, which was started to fade in my mind, that Spurs would be competitive for this Champions League place. But it really has changed the landscape. Or am I just reacting week by week to results? I think we're all reacting week by week to results. I think this whole season has been an emotional roller coaster in which not a lot has happened. It's a weird it's weird, isn't it? Like Spurs have actually been Spurs have been fourth for most of the season. And uh, they've not been lower they've not been lower than fifth. Yeah, it's not even been like, say, the Joes, the season where they sat Mourinho, they obviously started really well and were top, I think, at the start of the season. And then they massively tailed off. And that, But that was much more of an actual roller coaster. whereas this season's actually been incredibly placid, I think, in terms of results. Not many of their results have been that surprising. They haven't had many disastrous defeats or, or had many highs where they played incredibly well. And yet the mood, rather than the results, has been a roller coaster ups and downs, with lots of downs recently, particularly in the last week or so. Um, so it is amazing that the mood has the mood has collapsed, even though the results haven't really collapsed. So would you say it's more like you know one of those House of Horror things where like it's flat but it's quite scary? So it's more like that. I don't know what's the house. Well, you of know, horror? you go into like a thing, you go on one of those like trains, but it's not like a roller coaster, but you're on like a oh, like a ghost train, a little ghost train, ghost train. Thing. Oh, ghost, yeah. that's for you. A ghost so that, train. That's yeah. what it's called. Ghost train. Yeah. So what? Sorry, why is it yeah, like exactly. a ghost train? Because it's because it's, because it's level, but then it's scary. Ooh, but it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just think it's to do with the quality of the football. I mean, the results yeah, you can... that's part of it, yeah. yeah because the results you can look at, they are there. They are science. They are data. They are statistics. They are facts. The performances are open to interpretation. And one man's, didn't we manage the game well, it's another man's, why the fuck can't we attack properly? Um, and I think that's what's causing the, 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 the disconnect between... Uh, you know the results and and the mood. That's true, but what what I would add is that the Conte contract situation really exacerbates this sense that the mood is up and down, even as results don't. Is that the mood fluctuates more than the results? In the sense that 
because everybody senses that he's off and there's so much uncertainty and there's no sense about what the next season's going to look like and there's no prospect of a brighter there's no prospect really of a brighter future beyond this season because we don't know what next season's going to look like that puts so much emotional pre- I'm sure we said this before it puts so much emotional pressure on are they going to win a trophy this season are they going to get fourth this season because you sense that whatever happens is either going to mark this whole you know all the time and money and energy that's been invested into Conte it's either going to be a success or a failure based on the next few games and that and that creates this kind of exhausting like as like I said the other day I think they're all emotionally everyone's all in all the time it's either going to be a success or a failure and that makes it a lot harder to and that basically makes everybody react to you know, two up when they win, two down when they lose, which is, I think, taking a lot out of everyone. A couple of famous faces at the Spurs Stadium that weekend. Yaya Toure uh, tweeted out a picture of himself enjoying what looked like a very, very lofty perch uh, he was in uh, watching the game in the new stadium. Um, perhaps more interesting, Shahid Khan, um, the owner of Fulham and the Jacksonville Jaguars, was sat next to Daniel Levy. I only say more interesting, possibly because you know the the Spurs NFL thing is still a mystery of what it, other than you know earning some very good revenue over the years, uh, is what the long term plan was when they built that st- American football stadium underneath the football stadium. And Jacksonville, one of the teams, James and I spoke this with my NFL hat on, who don't fill the stadium out. And it's regarded as something of a disgrace um, that they can't fill their stadium out. He's already got, obviously, with Fulham, ideas about how what life works in London. And I just wondered whether we could be seeing the the London Jacksonville Jaguars at some stage down the line. I mean, otherwise, what's he sat there doing, really? Well, I mean, that has been a thing that people have talked about for quite a long time, like before the stadium was even built. Right? And I think they've played... I mean, I could be completely wrong. I know nothing about NFL. But I think I'm right in saying they've played kind of a disproportionate amount of games. They've played here. more than anyone else, yes. That's correct, other, uh, yeah. That is correct. In comparison to other franchises. So, yeah, it's it's very possible. I mean, I guess, you know, he. I think he lives in the States. He doesn't live in London, does he? So I'm guessing he's like over for a trip. Fulham are playing on Sunday, so... Well, they didn't play, but I know what you mean. They were appearing, weren't they? On the pitch for a little bit. I can well imagine him being mates of Daniel Levy, giving all that stuff you said about their business interests. So, yeah, I'm wouldn't. i sure if there's anything massive in the offing, they wouldn't be stupid enough to be pictured together at a game when, you know, everyone's going to see it. Well, I don't think he's going to buy Tottenham. No, I don't think anyone's suggesting that, Jack. No, no. But in terms of NFL and the stadium, I mean, look, it's no surprise that, you know, the owners of the Premier League clubs, they... Talk a lot, obviously. Daniel Levy, you know, works closely with these guys. So in that sense, it's normal. In terms of NFL at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, you know, clearly it brings a lot of money in when they have those, I think, what is it, two games every autumn. The dream would be to have a London NFL franchise. Yeah. You would either, either play... Half, you know, half of the games at Tottenham, half the games at Wembley, or even all the games at Tottenham. If they did that, I mean, we, we've spoken about the transformative effect that the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium's had on the club's finances. If they had an NFL franchise there, now that would be utterly transformative. That would just be another level of revenue. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an NFL guy. I don't know. I, d- I don't get the impression that this is something that's around the corner. But if if that happened in real terms, like what would that mean for for Tottenham as a football club, as a football team? Because like it's all very well and good you saying they make loads of money if they had an NFL franchise there, but presumably they'd have to be signing, you know, Dan Marino or whatever to play for them. And it's not like 
It's not. It, that's not like that money is going to like all filter into Tottenham Hotspur. Well, no, we're not suggesting that the, 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 the club would be the, the, the NFL. We're suggesting that a, an American franchise would be transplanted into the, just the stadium. Jack's enthusiasm would, uh, was making me think it. Yeah, but I, no, I don't think it would be a Tottenham Hotspur branded thing. It would just no. play at the stadium on the, the flipped out pitch. The interesting thing, I mean, another interesting thing would be marrying up the two calendars in theory if it were to happen you know because obviously they'd play even if they played half they get half their home games at Tottenham half at Wembley they'd still need what four Danny you know more about this than I do four home four games at the stadium hypothetically so the Premier League allow that them so like Sherry Man did a calendar to, a calendar to that extent well you know the Premier League will allow what, what, particularly when when coin of the realm is used to lubricate those particular wheels and I was thinking about this a lot because of Khan's presence in the stadium at the weekend. There are all kinds of problems. You know, people will say it's it's thousands of miles away from, but so you know, the West Coast and East Coast teams in the United States are thousands of miles apart. But of course, there's a very very successful and integrated air transport system inside the United States. It would be mad if somebody set up in London to play at Spurs, for instance. My guess is that they would have to find space for all the kit of all the other 30-odd teams and keep them permanently in London so they wouldn't be flying back and forth across the States, across across the Atlantic. I also think that somebody would say, well, the only way this can work is if, let's say it was was Jacksonville or the Panthers, whoever it was going to be, they would play all of their home games in a two-month run. And so the players wouldn't have to leave London. And then they would play all their away games in a second run. These things all sound very unlikely to happen. But when you see clubs, franchises being transplanted from one city to another without a blink of an eye in the United States. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Well, to take it back to VAR at the start of the show, it shows that, you know, uh, football is not the only sport that couldn't care less about the match-going legacy, legacy fans, in inverted commas. Lots of sports don't care about fans that go. Oh, you know, when the Raiders have moved, what's it, three times now in the past two decades... Um, you know, too bad if you're if you're if you've bought all the gear and now you're living two and a half thousand miles away from the new stadium and all the rest of it. Of course, that's absolutely right. The Tottenham Chick Kings, by the way, that's what I'd call the Tottenham team. Chick Kings. That's good. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. James Moore is here, Jack Pitbrook is here, and I'm Danny Kelly. You know, Antonio Conte, some of the pressure's off him after that, uh, you know, rather easy win against Nottingham Forest. But the future of the manager, and of course, tied to that, the future of the centre-forward, um, continues to swirl around and around the media. And people have been asking, Jack, and we can, I think we can ask this now because he's clearly getting his health back and all the rest of it. Is it healthy? Which would be healthier, in your opinion, for Conte to stay on now to the end of the season since he's not going to sign a new contract um, and see if he can get the team over the line for fourth place? Or, as I sometimes suspect, we should have a clean break and if it means letting you know Ryan Mason or whoever run the team, um, at least it would stop that mad swirl of, of, of kind of rumour constantly over every press conference 
between now and the end of the season. Why is Conte still there? Is I guess what some people have been asking. So my view on Wednesday night was that it didn't really make sense for Conte to see out the rest of the season and that it would have made more sense for Conte to go. And even if that meant Ryan Mason coming in, maybe Ryan Mason might be able to improve the team. He's very popular with the players and, you know, has already had experience in this kind of interim interim role and to see out the last see out the end of the season and then you know at, at while Tottenham run a process for permanent next permanent manager this this is course of what they did in 2021 clearly the last few days have shown us this isn't what Tottenham want to do at least not yet by the fact that context is still in the job we read in David Ornstein's column this morning that the issue seems to have been parked for a few weeks with the uh I think David refers to talks between Tottenham and Conte in early April to decide what what comes next, which tells us at the very least he's got the Southampton game and the international break before anything else will happen. But in terms of trying to think why why Tottenham would do this, I think two things spring to mind. One is Daniel Levy will think that Tottenham have a better chance of fourth with Conte than without him, which, to be fair, will be a judgment based on the mood of the players, the feeling inside the camp. You know, my view was that maybe they had a better chance without him. Clearly, the club feel differently. The other point is probably more to do with kind of optics, which is that they don't want to repeat the shambles of 2021. Like it just isn't a good, it isn't a good look to not have a permanent manager in place at any given time. And I think, and they probably think that while they, they would rather stick with Conte until it becomes completely untenable to stick with Conte. And while, you know, while they run this process for his replacement in the background, rather than doing it all in public with no manager, which is what they did two years ago, and it was a disaster. My argument would be that they've had no permanent manager for the whole of this season, but that you know that, that's just the way I see the relationship between Conte um, and, frankly, the fans, who apparently it's our fault now, we're not patient enough. And uh, that post-match press conference, I, I, I watched it again, the business about AC Milan and how they're, you know, they're regular champions of Europe and all the rest of it, that's all back in the day. And it doesn't explain how Sheffield United are not regular champions of Europe. But, you know, he wants to eat, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting anything less than surreal self-justification from those press conferences now. Are you happy for him to stay to the end of the season, James? No, I don't think so. Not really. I, I, I mean, that game on Saturday didn't move a dial for me. I was fairly... I mean, like Jack leaving the stadium on Wednesday, and a lot of people, I'm sure, leaving the stadium on Wednesday night, I was fairly certain that was going to be it. It felt like, you know, not not just a not just a Kulusevski substitution, but just the atmosphere in that game generally would be what would really move the dial for Daniel Levy, as it's kind of seemed to be the way of it before, particularly with Nuno, obviously. But you no, know, it seems like they're gonna they're gonna plough on. Uh, as Jack says, that that comment from David Ornstein suggests that he'll certainly get the Southampton game, and that would be the logical thing on the basis of having just won the last game. If they get through that and they win that, then I guess you could say no harm done. My worry would be you get through that, you know, you, you play Everton, Everton away, yeah. you, you draw that game. It's probably you know a, a, a Monday night up at Everton. It's a tough game. Probably don't sack him off the back of that. Then you've got is it Brighton at home after that? Mm-hmm. Brighton a decent side actually, so you know you draw that game. Can you sack him after that either? Uh, so I could just I do worry about that post international break drift where there are a couple of potentially quite difficult games that Spurs need to win. I think Spurs need needs to win those games, 
But I, I don't think they're the kind of matches where if they lose, they're going to swing the axe. So I kind of think they might end up being caught in between which means what they need to sack him or what they need to get into the Champions League. Which means they go into that run of games against Liverpool, Manchester United and Newcastle, which will decide the shape of Spurs' season by the end of it with exactly the same situation going on with Antonio Conte being asked by people like Jack at every before and after every game, what are you going to do? Are you Are going to stay that? I mean, Jack would, of course, say it much more eloquently than that and try and blindside him. I get that. But essentially, we're going, why are you still here? Or why can't you sign a contract? And on and on and on. What's interesting to me is what the, how this, this I mean, because it's obviously a really strange situation. Big clubs don't get themselves into situations like this very often at all. Like, I can't really think of many other recent examples where it's clear that the manager is going, but they haven't got a replacement yet. It hasn't been, you know, he's, he's coming to the end of his contract. So I don't know, because there are no precedents for this, I don't know how the players will react. Because generally speaking, if a manager's about to get sacked, the players stop playing because they know we can play rubbish and the manager will get the blame, not us. And we can get him sacked and there'll be a new bloke in. Then we can start trying again when he comes in. We've seen this. This happens at Tottenham like every 18 months. So it's not exactly a surprise. But that situation isn't like this because we, you know, it's not... we don't know if Conte's going to get sacked and it might just be that he completes his contract. Now, it might be, and I don't know if this is if this is just me overinterpreting the Forest game, but the, there's a feeling that because Spurs have kind of bottomed out a bit or because the fans are so clearly going to blame Conte for whatever happens, that maybe that takes a bit of pressure off the players. Like normally we expect players to perform worse when a manager's about to get sacked, but I just wonder if... If maybe they'll, if maybe it will change, it would slightly change the mood in the players, or maybe the players will just think, look, he is going to get sacked, whatever. But we would like to be playing the Champions League next year. I'm sure they'd like the extra bonuses and stuff that come with Champions League football. So perhaps it is in their interest, even if they might be, you know, kind of down on Conte in general, to to keep playing despite despite the bad mood, to keep to keep working hard to try to get fourth anyway. I I, I genuinely don't know. Just to go back to what you're saying about that run of games, Danny, actually, with all due respect to Ryan Mason, and we could have a conversation about that league finally, if you want it. I I think if you get to that point and Conte's still manager and they're still in contention, I think you'd probably almost rather have him. That's when you want him. That's when you probably need the experience. So you're saying let him go, let Ryan Mason do the next three matches, bring him back for those three, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Four matches, I think it is. But yeah, I think if they get to if they get to a situation where he's still in charge, then I'd actually worry about it a bit less. It's what happens between now and then. And I worry that they could end up dropping more stupid points, particularly in those two away games, and and then get into a situation where they're chasing with those games, and suddenly the pressure's back and they can't handle it. The team has got me in a place as well at the moment where I think they're they're not good enough to guarantee any result. So perhaps it's a toss up. And leave you're right. Jack Levy has left us in a place here where no, no properly run club has ever got to before. Where can we just know, be? Just, let's be explicit about that as well. Sorry, Danny. Yeah, but, but we get a lot of people complaining, and I've seen the tweets. Oh, you're having a go at Conte again. You're having a go at Conte again, and it is worth bearing in mind. To, and we will be explicit about it. But people need to bear in mind that when we're criticising this appointment and the situation with his contract and the fact it's not been renewed, that is like a tacit criticism of Daniel Levy and the way the club is being run. And he has completely, he's com- completely dropped the ball with this, in my opinion. Yeah, I, no, like it, I think it's a, it's a complete calamity that you get. And like we said the other week, and like you're about to say then, no other top club would put themselves in this position, whereby the, the, there's this hanging, lingering thing for a second season in a row, because we did have it at the end of last season as well, if you remember. It's just been like a constant sense of flux because 
we've never had the commitment from the manager. And at Tottenham's level, you can't, you can probably exist like that at Chelsea or Man City where you can go out and buy a whole new team at the end of the season or whatever. At Tottenham, it has to be like a slower build and you can't, <laughs> those two things don't align at all. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. Like the whole, the whole Conte era has been completely kind of conditioned by this weird power imbalance between the manager and the club, which I think is even more even more so than the Mourinho. Than the, I mean, the Mourinho era was a bit like this, but at least Mourinho signed a longer contract and didn't threaten. It didn't kind of he didn't kind of conjure up this sense that he was about to walk off all the time, which is what Conte's done. And I can't. I, I genuinely can't think of any other examples in football, but it's. It's really, really unusual and weird and also just unhelpful because, you know, football, successful football clubs are so reliant on everybody pulling in the same direction. And I can't think of another example of anything else like this. And so it ha- you, can't, you can't kind of look at the... Con- you can't look at or judge the Conte era such as it is in any way independent of this, sen- of this kind of constant background sense that the power was all in Conte's hands. He had all the leverage and he and this idea exists which you know frankly he's kind of encouraging out into the ether which is that he's doing Tottenham a favor by being there levy can't possibly regardless of not whether they get fourth place at the end of the season daniel levy can't possibly reflect on these 18 months and think one i've enjoyed that and two that's been a, a roaring success well no of course you know, not. The, the, the club the club hasn't really moved on no not at like all. Uh, you know i guess there's a Pretty big difference in football in terms between finishing sixth and finishing fourth because you know you get into the Champions League. But in terms of like the stature of the club, like how close they are to really competing for top honours and whatever else, I mean, the dial has barely moved at all, really, has it? Whatever those feelings are that you're having, and you know, you know, my feelings is that we get three hours every season to deal with Arsenal. We've given them all six points, so shut up about the Arsenal. But if Arsenal win the title, that seems increasingly likely. Those 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 thoughts you're having now will be spotlit and put into a very very grim relief indeed uh, for Daniel Levy because you know the, the the way the two clubs have gone about their business in the past three years alone is chalk and cheese and the outcomes may well be similarly disparate. Right, so let, let's say he does go at the end of the season. Spurs finish fourth, but let's be optimistic. Pochettino is the people's champion, but there are loads of other runners and riders because there is some apparently inside, quite rightly, I think there is some reticence. I'd want him as an emotional choice, um, but I'm not sure that it, it does always work out. We talked about the stats last week where people do about 6% worse in terms of wins in their second spells at football clubs. The Part of it seems to be that Paratici would want Luis Enrique. I'm not sure I'd want to take much of Paratici's advice these days because who knows what his future holds. Luis Enrique, for you, anyone, anyone voting for Luis Enrique? We'll go through a list here. I kind of convinced myself it might be quite a good shout because he did trouble with Barcelona, but that was eight years ago and he did have Messi, Neymar and Suarez all somewhere near the peak of their powers. So you kind of fall over and win the treble with that team, probably. So, I, I mean, having, I mean, it's a very good athletic piece. I think it's by Dermot Corrigan and Adam Crafton about Spain at the World Cup and what went wrong there. I think if any, anyone who read that would probably have reservations. I mean, I know club football and international football sure. are very different. Sure. But I think anyone who read that would have quite big reservations about the way that went. You know, he's obviously very dogmatic about his style of play, which, you know, there's good and bad to that. You want to have a, you want to have a clear model. 
but you do need to be able to shift, I think, sometimes. And if it's not working, you need to be able to kind of move at the times. So, no, I wouldn't be at all sold on that, to be honest. I think he's a good, I think he's a very good coach. I'm not sure whether he'd be a very good manager for Tottenham. Yeah. Um, another name that keeps coming up, Jack, is uh, Thomas Tuchel. Uh, I read one piece. Now, of course, people are not responsible for the headlines over their pieces saying that um, Spurs have been, you know, he's one of the ones they're considering and they're considering his demands. Anyone that's making demands of Spurs, I don't want them to get the job because you should be saying, I'd be, I would love to come to that club and I'm going to go and work there because I think it's a great club and it has great potential. Once they start, I start seeing demands from the incoming managers. It just, I don't want. To, I don't want another Conte. Yeah, I I think it's unlikely at this point to be Tuchel. So he's a name which has come up a lot over the last. There've been so many whispers about him, him being positioned or him being put forward to be the next Tottenham manager. But my impression is that he he would like to he would like his next job to be at a club that's set up to win things you know he's seen what's happened with conte he knows that you can be a brilliant manager going to tottenham and it's not you know and, and you can't immediately compete for stuff i think that you know his name comes up a lot in connection with real madrid which i imagine would probably be his first choice if nagelsmann were to leave bayern munich i'm sure he'd be probably in pole position there i think it's i think those are the kind of jobs that he would most like to go into next rather than rather than tottenham even though on the other hand you know he loved working in the premier league he loves living in london so it's not it's not a completely unattractive job but i just don't think it's it's really the type of project he wants to go into and i and i wouldn't expect him to be i'm not at the moment i'm not expecting him to be on on Parastri's shortlist, which he's working on at the moment. Yeah, um, as I say, I'm not entirely confident that he should be the person making this decision, but that's where we are again. Well, that's the unusual... That, that, to me, is one of the most surprising things about right now. So this is... I, I wrote about this in a story that I did a few days ago. Based, as I understand it at the moment, Le- Daniel Levy has tasked Fabio Parastri with drawing up a shortlist over the course of this month for the for the people who are to come in next and clearly who the next permanent manager is is inseparable from who gets to pick the next permanent manager and i kind of i i kind of, i would have assumed that this would have been you know daniel levy having his choice just as it was with you know when they appointed conte in the first place in 2021 and yet my understanding is that in fact it is uh, it's it's Paratici at the moment who at least has been tasked by Levy. So of course Levy will still have the final say, but Paratici is at least putting a list of candidates together, and that means that you know these are going to be more Paratici friendly candidates rather than you know the candidates that some fans would want. Is it possible that Daniel Levy is just like telling him to keep busy? You do your list, Fabio. You stay in your office and write your list. Is there any chance? Of There's that every chance of that because let's be honest. Saying he's got a month to put together this list, I could put together the list for Daniel Levy in the next thirty seconds. Now I presume he listens to this uh, this podcast. So here we go, Daniel. Well, of course, you've got Potts, who you know, Tukum, we've talked about, um, Luis Enrique, we've talked about. Here are some more names for you: Roberto De Zerbi, Thomas Frank, Marco Silva, Oliver Glasner, Luciano Spalletti, and Ruben Amarin. I'd add Sergio Conceição in case you want to have just a you know around ten uh, to choose from. There, I've done the list of people who would be likely to be very good Spurs managers to replace Antonio Conte. I've done it for free, and I've done it in thirty seconds. Can I chuck Jabby Alonso on the end of that? You there? certainly I, can. I, I said him. You certainly out can. Out of nowhere in twenty twenty one, Jack might remember he was my shout for absolutely no reason. Basically, just because he's good looking, and I thought he looked good in a suit. That was more or less the only reason. Before he had a proper senior job, I think he was with Sociedad, their their under twenty threes or B team or whatever mm-hmm. at the time. He's doing quite well at Leverkusen now, isn't he? I think you're. you're yes, a he, no, he's doing. Yes, man he, of the footballing world. He certainly improved that team. 
Um, yeah, they're not they're I mean, not setting the world on I, fire. I, 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 I just feel like I should be consistent with that with that opinion. They play Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in the training ground before before they start their morning session. Well, that's already an improvement. Then I imagine I'm, I'm being confronted by Antonio's baleful stare as you arrive for work. Yeah, Jabilonzo, I think Jabilonzo would be a great choice. Although, look, what I, what, what I should add because I have had a lot of questions on this is that we we don't know at this point what the who is on the list. I believe that Enrique is light is very very likely to be at the top of the list because Prachi's always admired him a huge amount. And then the other names that I mentioned in my story a few days mm. ago. So Glasner is somebody who Prachi's a big fan of. Amarim and Spalletti are other managers that Prachi's a big fan of. Deserbi is someone who would be I think a really good fit, although I'm not sure if if he is that close to Paratici. So I can't say with certainty that he would be on the list. So I think we've all got to be a bit patient to see who exactly is on this list and what it looks like. But yeah, Enrique is the name I would expect to be at the top of the list. It is mad that after after what happened in 2021, and you know, we heard about the list, Fabio's list last time around, uh, uh, for that to have been a complete shambles, end up appointing Nuno, sacking him after 10 games, Levy basically going over his head at that point to bring in Conte. And now here we are, because it hasn't worked out with Conte, asking the bloke who failed to come up with a list, a good list last time, to come up with a list again. Although I know, I know we'd all say that some of the people on that first list, you could argue. Yeah, the, the initial Hag, list Potter, from 2021 was really good. Fonseca looks amazing now, right? I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. If Spurs had stuck with the initial list in 2021 and got Ten Hag... Who, who else was that? So, remind, remind so, would have, who so uh, Hansi Flick, Eric Ten Hag... Ralph Ragnick, whatever happened to him. Uh, Graham Potter and Roberto Martinez, I think. But if they'd gone for Ten Hag... So Ten Hag really wanted to come to Tottenham. Uh, Daniel Levy was just a bit un- unsold, basically, on the idea of appointing Ten Hag as, as Tottenham manager. It would have been really good. Ten Hag's clearly really, really good. And I feel like we, he could have... Saved, imagine how much stress and pain it would have saved everyone if Tottenham had just appointed Ten Hag two years ago. Ten Hag obviously has like the uh, the kind of aura, the personality to kind of run a club, like to carry a club. He's doing that at Manchester United. He could easily do it at Tottenham. You're absolutely right, but that's what. But people didn't think he did. Like when when he had his when he spoke to Tottenham, I think it was the kind of I think it was the sort of personality side that Tottenham were not so much sold on because he's clearly like a really good coach who's done fantastically fantastic work at Ajax over the years, and his teams play the right way. What's also interesting about this is that remember the famous Tottenham DNA comments of Daniel Levy, which I think will go down as some of the the kind of worst <laughs> the worst judged comments by a by a football club chairman in recent years because since Daniel Levy came up with that he's appointed uh, a succession, two, yeah. Yeah, a six, well he's a sack Mourinho but then appointed two other managers who haven't got the slightest interest in this Tottenham DNA stuff whatsoever. You know, free-flowing football, no. Young players, no. You know, attacking to entertain the fans, he, he no. Actually, he actually fooled me, Jack. I thought he understood what it is that Spurs fans, by and large, want. And Spurs fans are not fools. They understand they're in the most competitive league in any sport in the world. I actually cannot think of a league uh, uh, in any sport that I know about which is more competitive than the Premier League. We can, We don't expect them to win the league by 15 points and all the rest of it, but there is a DNA and... It, it, and this is why, in the end, I would come down, if we're not going to get Pochettino, for perfectly good reasons, Ruben Amorin at Sporting has played attacking football very, very well for years, despite having his best players, including Pedro Porro, sold from out from under him, again and again, because that's the model of Portuguese football. 
Sergio Consasau at Porto um, has produced team after team, but exactly the same thing. And he has brought through young players, brought in players that you would say, oh, that's a bit odd, and, they're, and then they're, they're successful. It's not a question of appointing somebody who looks good on a marquee. Find out the people who are playing good attacking football who are not necessarily managing clubs who can just spend the money willy-nilly, although Spurs have a lot of money. This is not the terrible, difficult thing that he makes out. And all managerial appointments, as Mourinho and Conte have proved, are themselves a gamble. So at least go for someone who might make the fans happy with the way they play the game, because it's going to be a gamble anyway. There is this theory. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but I, I think the fact that I'm mentioning it probably suggests that I do. Daniel Levy thinks that success under Pochettino was down to Daniel Levy, right? Not down to Pochettino. It was as much down to him for appointing him as it was for the work that Pochettino did over that time. Okay, let's say, let's just say let's say your theory is correct, and I've no reason to to argue with you. Oh, it's my, it's my in, theory. In that man. case, in that case, he can take the failure of Conte on on his desk. There it is. Put, really put it in your "I messed up" file there, which which you know. This is genuinely one of. I, one of many really interesting questions this summer for Tottenham. And that is, to what extent does Daniel Levy look at what's happened the last few years and think, this is awful, I got it wrong, I made a series of bad mistakes, and I will learn from those mistakes and do better next time? Or will he say, let's appoint another famous manager? Isn't it, fu- isn't it fun to have a famous manager? Let's, do, let's have one more. Uh, it's the you know we're a big club we've got a big shiny stadium we've got Harry Kane one more famous manager and we're going to nail it. Who is the famous manager though? In, I think in it's this instance. Good is, question. Is it? it could be I mean Enrique, Enrique? or Tuchel. I mean Pochettino is actually really famous, but obviously yeah. he is famous. To- he's not I've heard of him. I've heard coded of him. as famous in this sense. But I uh, to be honest, I don't have confidence that Daniel Levy will look back at the last three years and think I got it wrong let's let's change direction i think it's at, at least as likely that he will say let's just do it again listen thank you both for the last uh, 40 50 minutes here on the view from the lane thank you all for listening to us as well a little bit more upbeat than it has been in recent weeks even if we're talking about getting rid of the manager that's the modern game for you and that's the way spurs are at the moment You've been listening to James Moore and Jack Pitbrook and me, Danny Kelly. If you're not already an Athletic subscriber, you really should sign up now to read all of those and all the other amazing stuff that's on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. As I say, thanks for listening. Back very soon. The Athletic.